0: Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 34, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, part 1. The Church at Thyatira. Overall theme, number one, the Word of God must be our ultimate authority. Overall theme, number two, God really does hate religion all the unauthorized things done in his name. Let's read our text as adjusted for the code. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the son of God who is now having eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze now says this. I know your deeds and your agape love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late greater than at first. But I now have this against you, that you now tolerate the woman Jezebel, who is now calling herself a prophetess. And she now teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she has not now determined to repent of her immorality. Behold, I now throw her on a bed and those who are now committing adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches will choose to know that I am he who is now searching the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not now hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they now call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you now have you're commanded to hold fast until where I may come. And the one who is now overcoming, and the one now keeping my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are now caused to be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star, he who is now having an ear, they are commanded to hear what the Spirit now says to the churches. Historical setting. This letter to the church at Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters. Sorry about that. But unlike the other cities, we do not know a lot about Thyatira. It is believed that the name Thyatira comes from the Greek word Theia, a female deity or goddess, and Tyrannos, a tyrant or ruler, literally ruled by a woman. Clearly. This is not coincidence given Jezebel's role. All these little details, just like the name of Smyrna, sure can make one a believer in Yahweh Adonai, the sovereign God whose spirit ensured every little detail was and is exacting and not to be overlooked or washed over, even down to the names of these cities. It's all amazing. Of the seven cities, Thyatira is considered the least important to Roman Asia. There was nothing remarkable about the city. It was a place of idolatry for sure, but it did not have any key temples or major structures. Nothing worth noting. It was, however, on a trade route that connected Pergamum to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, linking up with both Smyrna and Byzantium, which is modern-day Istanbul. This trade route was the road by which the imperial post traveled. Now strategically, Thyatira acted as a first line of defense against any conquering armies heading to Pergamum. However, since it had no natural defense structures, as it sat in an open valley, all it really could do was slow down an invading army, giving Pergamum a chance to prepare for the battle. They were, if necessary, the sacrifice, so to speak. Eventually, Thyatira was a commerce town, and the one thing it had in common with the other cities was the trade guilds. More guilds have been identified from its ruins than in any other city in the Roman province of Asia. Inscriptions have been found which mention the following, wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. One of its primary trades was the garment industry, specifically the dyeing of woolen goods. We must not miss the significance of these trade guilds. If one wanted employment, then they needed to be a member of these guilds. However, what came along with membership was the required worship of the guild god. It was a mandatory part of the profession. This, obviously, put a severe stumbling block before believers. Do they work and be responsible to provide for their family, or do they suffer? It's a terrible choice, but this dynamic plays into the core issue in this letter. The principal deity of Thyatira was the ancient Lydian sun god Triminos, who was identified with the Greek sun god Apollo. Triminos was thought to be the son of Zeus. He was represented figuratively as Apollo with rays of light beaming from his head and feet of bronze. Over time, the worship of Apollo slash Triminos was joined with the Roman imperial cult and they were just melded together. Of lesser stature in the pantheon of gods which they worshipped was Boratine, a goddess identified with Artemis, the sister of Apollo. Thyatira also paid homage to the goddess Sambethi, who was a sibylla or a prophetess who claimed to speak for Apollo. Now, that whole background is all just so strangely fitting to our story. The eyes of fire, Revelation 2.18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The son of God who is now having eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze now says this. For those who have ever said that Jesus never directly claimed that he was actually, literally the Son of God, they just did not read far enough or careful enough. In fact, in John 3.18, 5.25, 10.36, and 11.4, Jesus also referred to himself as the Son of God. So this is not a new title. Declaring that these are the words of the Son of God, however, was like pulling out the ultimate trump card. This is a direct stab at both the church's current source of authority, a prophet who claimed to speak the words of God, and it was a stab at the sun god Triminos, who was believed to be the son of God, the son of Zeus. Jesus wants to cut through all the cultural clutter and just reset everyone's perspective of things. He is the son of God, and there is no other. First, this prophetess Jezebel used her spiritual gifting as the basis for her authority in the church, notwithstanding the fact that she was channeling a spirit other than the Spirit of God. Therefore, Jesus makes a clear distinction between his words and her words. His are the words of the Son of God. Thus, his words trump those of this prophetess, and his words are the one to which they should give heed. Jezebel is just a vessel. In contrast, he is the source of ultimate authority. And as we have learned, the source matters. The source is everything. Second, Jesus made the point that although those in Thyatira believe that Triminos rules the sun, he is the son of God and therefore rules all of creation. He is now having eyes like a flame of the sun, which means that his gaze penetrates all things in judgment. Like the sun which shines upon the darkness, there is nothing that is hidden from his sight. All is laid bare before him. His gaze is so intense, like the flame of the sun, that it penetrates our thoughts even before they are formed in our minds, which, by the way, is an unfathomable concept. Nothing stays hidden from his penetrating eyes. Just think back to the time when Jesus walked on the earth. All the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak because he always knew what they were thinking. He always spoke to the secrets hidden in their soul and expose those areas of darkness before all the people. And the funny part is that they never learned. They keep coming up to him trying to trap him, and he would absolutely humiliate them each and every time, exposing their motives and shining light on their darkness. His eyes, which are burning like sun, also penetrate all things, and therefore miss nothing, not a thought, not a motive, not even an intention of the heart. He sees it all. Feet of bronze. His feet like burnished bronze is a statement regarding his purifying judgment. It brings up the image of those furnaces that had to be dug out from the earth to forge bronze since no man-made container could handle the intensity of the heat. Thus, with an intense heat and powerful force, he will stomp upon all that is needing judgment. On the one hand, this is not a comforting image to those who will undergo judgment. Yet, on the other hand, to the body that needs to be purified to remain faithful to the end, These are words of promise and hope as the Son of God will personally intervene to preserve the church. I know your deeds. Revelation 2.19 I know your deeds and your agape love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late greater than at first. Agape love. This starts remarkably like the letter to Ephesus, your deeds, your love, versus the letter to Pergamum, which focused on how they held tight to all that was sourced in God. Hence, my name, my faith, my witnesses. And remember, the source matters. The source is everything. So this beginning immediately gives us an uncomfortable feeling. Yet this initial comment is also remarkably different than what Jesus said to Ephesus. There's more going on here in Thyatira than there was in Ephesus. After all, Jesus comments on their agape love. This is a love that could only be expressed if the Spirit of God was the one doing the work in and through their lives, as God is agape love, and the fruit of the Spirit is agape. The point being is that this is not a love that they could manufacture on their own. Jesus is therefore acknowledging that their deeds, their faith, service, and perseverance are all rooted in him, in his agape love. Thus, unlike with the believers in Ephesus, who had left this relationship rooted in agape love and exchanged it for their own personal zeal of religious intolerance, those at Thyatira had not fallen from grace and were not all caught up in their religious performance trying ridiculously hard to be good for God. As we have learned, it's not the deeds in themselves that matter. It is the source of the deed. If what we do derives from God as we bet our lives on who he is, then it is a good deed, for it is an expression of his life in ours. However, if what we do derives from our flesh, albeit our extremely religious flesh, it is worthless, regardless of our intentions or the results. The source matters. The source is everything. Contrasting with those in Ephesus who were counseled to return to their first deeds, for their latter works were lacking, those in Thyatira were continuing to grow in their deeds because they were rooted in God's agape love. They continued to bear the fruit of love. For those who are deeply embedded within the religion of Christianity, this concept tends to be very hard to grasp and difficult to emotionally accept. They see all the good that comes from their own service to God and the service of others and all the amazing ways that God uses them, so they assume that they are good with God. But Jesus made it clear that even great works such as casting out demons, performing miracles, and prophecy, all performed in his name by those who call him Lord, can be unauthorized, lawless, or simply an expression of their own instinctual religious wisdom. As such, he says that there will be a day when many, yes, many, not a few, who are convinced of their service to him and their service of him, those who said to him, Lord, Lord, will be cast out from his presence. He will declare to them, I never knew you. Now depart from me, you who have chosen to now be practicing lawlessness. Those are some of the most chilling words Jesus ever spoke. After all, it is unfathomable that they could be a vessel for all those great works done in his name, works that changed people's lives. And still, they meant nothing to God because they were not sourced from the Father. They were, in effect, lawless. Or said another way, they were not perfect works. And all lawlessness is sin. This is mind-bending, but when it comes to our relationship with God and what is produced from our lives, The source matters. The source is everything. The outcomes of our lives all belong to God, and he will use any vessel to perform his work, just like he did with Balaam, or Balaam's donkey for that matter. But his willingness to use someone does not validate the quality of the vessel which he used. Once again, we saw this with the church at Ephesus. They did great works with their toil and perseverance, but those works were not sourced from his agape love. In fact, they had left his agape love. Thus impressive as their works seemed to be, they were simply not good with God as they were lawless works. They had departed and left their first love for sin. Jezebel, Revelation chapter two, verse 20 through 21. But I now have this against you, that you now tolerate this woman Jezebel, who is now calling herself a prophetess. And she now teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality And eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, except for the two words which are in the aorist tense, this is presented to us primarily in the present tense. The verbs have, tolerate, calls, teaches, and leads are all in the present tense. But commit and eat are rendered in the aorist. As such, we need to sharpen our focus to understand what the Spirit now says to the churches, what He says to us in our now. But let's hold on to that thought. There's more to come on the implications of these verb tenses. What Jesus has against these believers raises many issues that tends to be problematic within Christianity, such things as spiritual gifts, authority of leaders, authority of the word of God, and spiritual deception. This woman Jezebel, who is now calling herself a prophetess, is described to us in code, but we must turn to the codex to get our understanding. In the same way that the story of Balaam set for us our contextual understanding of the letter to Pergamum, so too does the story of Jezebel frame for us the context of this letter to Thyatira. Jezebel was a queen of Israel married to King Ahab. However, she was the daughter of Ethbaal, a non-Jew, the king of Sidon who ruled from Tyre. In addition to being king, Ethbaal was the high priest of Baal, ironically known as the sun god. Which made him more than a mere follower. Ethbaal was an absolute devotee. He represented Baal on earth. He was Baal's vicar. His name means "together with Baal" or "in place of Baal." The kingdom of Tyre was also considered to be a spiritual kingdom of Baal, and its high priest ruled as supreme king over the people of the land. This shed some light as to why the king of Tyre. And his kingdom is used in the Codex as a metaphor for Satan and his kingdom on earth. This kingdom represented the anti-kingdom of God, or the kingdom of the Antichrist. And in the same way that Satan seduced Eve to sin, Ethbaal seduced King Ahab to sin through marrying his daughter Jezebel. Yes, Jezebel, a non-Jew, became queen of the Jews. We will discover that this relationship has overtones to the issues we studied in the letter to Pergamum. In the letter to Pergamum, we addressed the unauthorized union of true believers with those who were believers in name only, under the guise of personal freedom, and influenced by the power of their leaders. Believers began to take what they thought they needed and wanted in relationship, notwithstanding what God desired. In Thyatira, things take another step down the slippery slope of apostasy. As it addresses the effects and the destruction that comes from unlawful relationships between believers and flat out unbelievers, pagans or non Christians, all imaged through this union of a Jewish king and a non Jewish queen. Jezebel of Tyre was given in marriage to Ahab, the king of Israel, to secure a lucrative trade deal between the two countries. In effect, Ahab married himself and the nation of Israel to Baal to secure their financial future. This sort of compromise for financial security is the same type of pressure put on the believers in Thyatira by the trade guilds all throughout Roman Asia. Thereafter, instead of the law of God governing the people, the law of Baal governed the people of Israel. Ethbaal, through his unlawful marriage, usurped the power of God and the power of the king of Israel and put in place the rule and authority of Baal. And he did it from within. He did not have to go to war to conquer Israel. Rather, he placed his spy, his corrupting influence, within the center of Israeli life and from within conquered the people. Jezebel, on behalf of Baal, persecuted both the true prophets of God and the remnant of faithful believers, insisting that Baal is the god of the land. Please take note. This is exactly how Satan, emblematically represented by the king of Tyre, will accomplish his goals. For he also works from within, even the man whom we call the Antichrist will take his seat of authority from within the temple of God, from within the collection of true believers who are now the temple of God in which the Holy Spirit or the Shekinah glory now dwells. And it is from within that he will work his corruption and deceit, ultimately declaring that he is God, an event that is referred to as the abomination of desolation. Now, this whole scenario encapsulates the apostasy of Korah, the boastful pride of life, through the usurping of what is to be the true leadership in the church, the word of God, with a substitute that bases their authority on power through the avenue of the prophetic. As it says in the Codex, for people are using it, prophecy, to give authority to their own ideas, turning upside down the words of our God, the living God, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of heaven's armies. This is exactly what Jezebel was doing. A side note on the future. There are some who have asserted that this union between Ahab and Jezebel is a picture of the coming kingdom of the Antichrist, a union between religion and power depicted in the activities of the Catholic Church. After all, historically, the vicars of Christ, the Pope, who purportedly represent the spiritual rule of God on the earth, took power and authority over the kings of the earth. For centuries, the kings of England, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, and so on, bowed in obeisance to the vicar of Rome. As we know, history does tend to repeat itself. Well, that outcome is mere speculation. But what we do know is that the demon, the beast, who will possess the man we call the Antichrist, will use the vehicle of religion captured in the image of the woman who rides the beast. He will use religion to subdue and gain control over the peoples of the earth. Again, many have speculated that it is through the Catholic Church that he will arise to power. He will then use that same religion to persecute true believers, of which the Catholic Church has a long and notorious history of slaughtering millions of true believers. This is what happened in the past, and many believe that it provides a foreshadowing of the future. We do not know if this is true. Again. It is speculation. Undoubtedly, the Catholic Church, along with many of our trusted religious institutions within Protestant Christianity, will likely have a significant role to play in the end times, having been captured or seduced by the woman who rides the beast. What we do know is that the man we call the Antichrist, who again will become possessed by the beast, will rise to power leading the people of God into the apostasy of Cain just as we saw in the church of Ephesus and Pergamum, and the apostasy of Balaam, as we saw in the church of Ephesus and Pergamum, and the apostasy of Korah, as in the church at Thyatira. It's a trifecta of trifectas, six, 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 all coming out from within the church. Power and authority. Without question, Jezebel was a force with which to be reckoned. She was artful, persuasive, and capable of exercising broad influence over others because of her position and her keen ability to use power in the form of spiritual governance, all backed by her team of prophets. She was unscrupulous, immoral, and she successfully led both Ahab and the people of Israel in the worship of Baal and Asherah. She financially supported 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. She was also well known for her witchcraft. It seems that King Ahab was so taken by her that he gave her full permission to do whatever it was that she wanted. The Apostasy of Korah By using this imagery of Jezebel, Jesus communicates that this prophetess' authority within the church was widely permissive and destructive, but it also usurped the actual authority and leadership of the church, much like the Apostasy of Korah. Her claims to be a prophetess were exerted so forcefully that those in the church not only tolerated her, but they also submitted to her authority, despite her obvious heresy and dictatorial rule. The code states that she is now claiming to be a prophetess. This gives us a hint that she lusted after the power and authority that her gift provided, and she lived off the power and authority her gift afforded her. Therefore, to secure her role in Everyone's life, she is now making sure that everyone knows that she is a prophetess and that she has the power. Clearly, the use of the present active participle brings all this forward into the Thyatira church of our day. In this, we find the boastful pride of life, again, the apostasy of Korah. What we studied in Jude 11 is now demonstrated to us in the letters to the churches and the trifecta of 666. The spirit of the Antichrist, the beast, is even now active in this world. And this spirit is found to be operating deep within our churches and within the leadership of the religion of Christianity. In the letter to Ephesus, we saw the lust of the flesh, the apostasy of Cain, and the first number of the beast, six. In the letter to Pergamum, we saw the lust of the eyes, the apostasy of Balaam, and the second number of the beast, six. And now in this letter to Thyatira, We see the boastful pride of life, the apostasy of Korah, and the third number of the beast, six. Collectively, in the churches of Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, six, six, six. In the Greek, the word translated tolerate, ephemi, means to send forth. So it was not that Jezebel was off in some corner somewhere, working her evil deeds to a few followers, and they just. Tolerated her behavior. Rather, they literally took her words and sent them forth over the body as the authoritative word of God, and all fell under her rule. They embraced this prophetess. Perversion of spiritual gifts. This woman was obviously gifted, but her gift had been perverted. The corruption likely came because of the deference, power, and position that she was granted by others simply because of the unique nature of her gift. After all, we all want to receive a vision or a word from the Lord, but in seeking the gift and granting deference to the gifted, these believers fail to discern what words were from the Spirit of God and what were from another spirit or from her own authority and ideas. The spiritual gifts of God are indeed a blessing, and they are intended to be used for the common good, for the equipping of the saints, to the building up of the body in agape love. But just because someone has a gift, especially a very demonstrative gift, like prophecy, or perhaps teaching or leading, it does not guarantee that the gift will be used for God. Remember, the source matters. The source is everything. Thus, we can never make decisions of authority, leadership, or direction for the church, and especially for our lives, just because a prophet speaks a word. We must instead Test all things to ensure that a given word is from the Spirit of God. Hence, the Spirit tells us not to despise prophetic utterance, but to examine everything and to hold fast to that which is good. The implication is that some prophecies or even aspects of a prophecy can and will be corrupted. They will be unauthorized and influenced by the prophet themselves or by another spirit. A prophet is just a person. And if they are not walking in the spirit of God, if they are not in Christ, then there is a chance that their attitude, emotional construct, presuppositions regarding relationships or just the pressures of life might make them vulnerable to their own thoughts as well as to other voices from beyond. The true authority, the word of God. This brings us to the next issue, and that is the source of authority over our lives. The Word of God is to be the absolute and ultimate authority over our lives. The Codex tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Thus, if a prophetic word does not line up or is in any way inconsistent with the Word of God, then we are to not let it have a voice of authority in our lives. That does not mean that we are to reject the prophet and stone them as they did in the Old Testament. It just means that we are to reject or in effect stone the prophecy. We are to put the lie or the deception to death. Personally, I've received many prophecies that were from the Spirit of God and many, so, so many that were not. The ones that were not were sometimes obvious in the words attempted to strike fear, guilt, shame, duty, condemnation, confusion, division, and such other gross things in my heart and in the hearts of others. But often the error was not that obvious. And these prophecies caused a lot of confusion in my heart, which, by the way, is another telltale sign. I had to learn that confusion, fear, guilt, shame, condemnation, and so on, is not how God tends to communicate. Those errant prophecies sounded far more like the way Satan talks than the way God talks. It is critical, therefore, that we learn how God speaks then we will be able to differentiate between competing voices and know with all clarity when we have received a word from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. This is how we test or examine all things. This is a principle that rings true for our own gifting as well. We must keep in mind that if there are areas in our life where we are living in fear, if we are accommodating our flesh and giving room for its desires, whether those are desires for security, stability, connectedness, being wanted, needed, special, or just plain lustful desires. If we are giving ourselves to another so-called God by looking to the me, our own wisdom or gifting, or to that of some prophet or leader to manage and direct our lives, then it is likely that we are ruled by our flesh and not by the Spirit. And even though we might be thoroughly convinced that we are doing God's work and using our gifts for Him, the truth is that our lives will produce death and decay. The issue of what is the true authority over our lives is a big deal. The word of God is to be the ultimate authority. It's also to be our absolute priority. For if we are neglectful in this way, there's a good chance that we have fallen from grace or that we will fall from grace. It is just a matter of time. Role of the prophetic. When we have someone in our lives who is gifted with powerful leadership, is a skilled teacher, or with an amazing supernatural gift. It is extremely easy to be captured, enthralled, and mesmerized by that person, especially if they are the one who brings the prophetic word of God into our lives. As such, in Thyatira, both then and now, Jezebel both teaches and leads Jesus' bondservants astray. Faith and Fear This is likely the reason why many within Christianity reject the prophetic. They say it is too big of a danger and quite uncomfortable. Yet the Spirit specifically told us not to reject prophetic utterance, but to test it or examine it thoroughly and hold fast to that which is good. In my experience, this is difficult because even in our examination of prophecy, we are biased by what we want to hear and what we do not want to hear. Few of us are open to correction from the Spirit of God, which is evidenced through the removal of the candlestick of Ephesus and the disappearance of any record of there being a church at Pergamum. We tend to read into words of correction what we think is true, what our own delusion tells us is true, and we miss the words of God that are true. We are also often captured by the power and authority of the person delivering the message, or by our lack of respect for the person or how they deliver the message. If we do not like how they said it or what they said, we tend to filter the message using our own wisdom, our own emotional judgment, to determine if the message was from God. And quite frankly, we can often be confused by the images and layered meaning of things. As we have learned, the Spirit of God talks in his own language, he speaks in code. And if we are not now having ears to hear, we will likely miss what he now says, attempting to understand it all through our own language. The Spirit of God loves to communicate in images, numbers, phrases, colors, metaphors, and so on. And to him, Time operates in a totally different construct than the way we like time to operate. It can all be very confusing. Nevertheless, if we in any way restrict prophecy due to fear, fear of our own capabilities to properly discern prophecy, or the fear of things getting wild and out of control because everyone wants to hear something from God, then we will have decided in the flesh. Faith and fear are the antithesis of one another. Thus, even if we are trying to protect believers from error, A decision based on fear will always produce death, regardless of our good intentions. Remember, intentions are worthless to God. Again, a decision based on fear will always produce death, regardless of our good intentions. Therefore, despite its problematic nature, we are not to despise prophetic utterance, but we are to carefully and humbly, with the help of the Holy Spirit, examine all things and wait for the Spirit of God to reveal the meaning of what was communicated. It may take time, a very long time, and we know time is one of our worst enemies, but we must learn to wait. If it is truly a message from God, he will ensure that in his time we come to know what he wanted us to know. After all, that is why he spoke. Let's stop here and we will pick up in our next podcast and discuss how Jezebel, with her prophecy, leads the Lord's bondservants astray. She leads them to compromise. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.